0: Again, go to first100k.com to grab your free 10-day training. Today, my featured guest is Josh Witten. You can find him at makesoil.org, makesoil.org. And Josh is an ecotech entrepreneur. If you don't know what that is, that's okay. He'll probably explain it to you. And he's a social innovator helping to repair planet Earth. At the age of 23, he founded a tech startup that got people out of their cars and onto, onto public transit, uh, creating jobs while reducing fossil fuel emissions and the carbon footprint of millions. For his positive impact on people and planet, Josh was named a champion of change by then President Obama. Josh's company was also named one of the most innovative companies in transportation by Fast Company magazine before being acquired by the Ford Motor Company to form Ford Smart Mobility. Now, Josh also co-founded one of the first urban farms in the southeastern United States. Still in operation today, the urban farm helps thousands of people each year to participate in a more beautiful food system. Now his latest planetary innovation is orchestrating a global people-powered movement to regenerate planet Earth. That's his Make Soil project. So we're gonna talk about that today, but even deeper, we wanna know who's the man behind all this planet Earth innovation? Why does he have a heart and a passion for this? Why isn't he out just chasing the money like so many other people? The power, the greed, What makes him tick? I love hearing these types of stories. So Josh, welcome to your first 100K, top 100 podcasts in entrepreneurship. Take about 60 seconds. Just fill in some of the gaps, if any, in that intro, would you?
1: Awesome. Thank you, Joseph. I'm really glad to be here. Uh, It's a great intro and I'll add some color to it. From a young age, there were three tendencies that were pretty strong with me. And that was, uh, I loved technology. So my mom says whenever she couldn't find me, as a toddler, I would end up uh, behind the television unplugging all the wires and plugging them back in again. So there was just some kind of innate satisfaction with technology. Whenever my parents went to throw an electronic device away, I wouldn't let them until I completely disassembled it, had no idea what was going on on the inside, but I just would marvel at whatever I was looking at. And, um, and then I loved studying nature. So if I wasn't uh, playing with wires and electronics, I was in the backyard with a magnifying glass and a and a container catching everything you could find and uh, catching tadpoles and watching them develop and feeding things and feeding things to each other and just everything you could imagine with nature. Uh, I loved that. And then there was a proclivity for business. I, I think maybe watching uh, my parents struggle with money. Uh, as many of your guests, I've, I've found a theme there. Many of us grew up with humble beginnings. Mm. And I think a lot of us just said, geez, we've got to get this money thing out of the way. We can't go out like that the way our parents did. So those three tendencies all swirled together to make uh, what we call an ecotech entrepreneur. Mm, so cool. Thank you for defining that for us. Now, take
0: a minute. Share something personal about you uh, that very few people in your business life
1: actually know. I'd say few people in my business life know that uh, I have spent an incredible amount of time um, studying religion, spirituality, the nature of the universe, wondering what I am, what this whole thing is, and uh, psychology, human potential. I've just I'm just consumed with with our potential. Why? Why do people um, all get born on this earth, but then go in such divergent directions to to fulfilling their potential and sometimes to missing it really far? So I've been consumed with that question since I was young. And despite being uh, what people would consider a high performer, people wouldn't know that I spent at least a a year of my life mostly lying in bed, depressed. You know, I got a hold of some bad ideas at one point in my life, became a, a nihilist, lost all touch with meaning. And that's why I'm such a, I call it a junkie for meaning sometimes now, because I know what it's like to have no meaning and no purpose. I'm never doing that again. Mm. Preach brother. I get it. I
0: lived it. I'm with you. (laughs) So let me ask you a question before we get into your entrepreneurial story. My audience wants your top three tips and strategies that they're going to implement into their business. But you and I both know strategies can only help us so far. What really matters is our mindset. Like, well, like where, what's going on up there in the, the self-talk land of life, right? And, and you just spoke about that lying in bed with a lot of ne- negative self-talk. But here's my question, and I'm curious. You spent all these years researching man's existence, mankind. Why are we here? What's the purpose of us like walking on this marble that's spinning in the universe?
1: What did you come up with? So the the conclusion I came to is that all matter and energy in the universe is is swirling together into increasingly beautiful and meaningful relationships with each other. And that's completely fractal. That's at the level of the human relationships. You and I are entering into into an interesting, beautiful relationship right now. Um, We're composed of a trillion cells. Whenever people say, I want to exercise or eat better or whatever, what they're talking about is helping those trillion cells to live in better relationship with each other. And our relationship to nature, to other animals, uh, you know, society, culture, it's, it's all just ever since you know, the cosmos swirling together, it's all just matter and energy in, uh, becoming increasingly um, almost in love with, with itself and with each other. And, uh, and I think you know, uh, this is, we have religious tendencies here, I suppose. And I, I believe that God is sort of that force that's motivating calling all matter and energy to swirl together in increasingly beautiful ways. And so I participate in that. Even in my entrepreneurship, I want any company I do or any project that I put my life force into to actually be productive, be generative and, and lead to a more beautiful world. Wow. Very cool. The author of all life is love itself.
0: Agreed. Agreed. Okay. So let's get into your entrepreneurial story. At what age did you venture out on your own and say, you know what, I'm not going to do this traditional route, uh, you know, that maybe I've seen others go. I want something different to happen with my life.
1: What was going on back then?
0: What age were you? And, and tell us that story real quick.
1: Well, my mom says I started my first venture at about five years old because neighbor neighborhood mothers would come complaining to her that uh, that their, their children had spent their allowance on buying tadpoles from me. And my mom said, Well, what's what's wrong with that? And and the neighborhood mother said, Well, my, my children helped your son catch the tadpoles though. So- and I do I do remember that I sold I sold uh, I had an upsell that if you wanted your tadpoles in rainwater chlorine free rainwater instead of tap water there wasn't there was an upcharge so I think there's truth to that story. Uh, And then my teenage years I had one of the first kind of online uh, retail companies in like maybe 1995 or six, Um, but I didn't know what an entrepreneur really was and so when that got too busy and everybody told me it was distracting me from my schoolwork I just shut it down. I didn't really have any entrepreneurial influences. I didn't know anyone who was an entrepreneur, and it wasn't until uh, I was 22 in college that I uh, just ventured over to the business side of the campus, away from the engineering side of the campus, and I finally met an entrepreneur. And so this was the first time in my entire life that I recognized what an entrepreneur was. That this guy, you know, it wasn't that he had PhDs or any any you know special thing going for him. He just had an idea. And woke up every day and applied himself in that direction and made adjustments and, and had a successful company. And I, and I kind of innately knew that that's, that's, that's what I wanted to do, but I'd never gotten the validation that that was a, that was a valid career path. And when I recognized what an entrepreneur was, I could barely sit in that chair. I just wanted to just bound out the door because my, my brain was full of ideas and, um, And so i i immediately started uh in university i started like three companies simultaneously that's not a good idea but um it is a good idea if you're trying to figure out which one to go for because very quickly the market will tell you reality will tell you um, and you'll you'll also notice which idea you're most passionate about and so that was this idea that um public transit uh in the in the world was very poor in the early 2000s you had all this all these buses going up and down the street in a lot of cities, but they were empty. Nobody wanted to ride the buses. And I realized that with my understanding of technology, I could I could fix that. So I had this wild idea in the early 2000s that instead of nobody knowing where the buses were, everybody could know where they are all the time. And so I was one of the first um, people to apply uh, GPS and wireless uh, internet and the mobile uh, web to, um, to real physical assets and moving around in the real world. And so That was an idea burning in my mind and it's so satisfying as i'm sure you know when years later you sit back and you say my god we made it happen there it is people are using it that's so cool
0: now that first entrepreneur that you met at university
1: what was the best lesson that you learned from
0: him being he was successful in business
1: i don't remember a single quote he wasn't a good speaker he wasn't inspiring he didn't he wasn't in great shape i just understood what he did for a living and it had never been presented to me before so it was just it was just that he had made this peculiar living you know i remember being taken to um like an elementary school or middle school or something they took us down to the library one day and they had this funny book in the library that they had us look through and it was a it was a like compendium of all the salaries of all the all the sort of jobs in the world and we all looked up, you know, doctor, you know, fireman, you know, postal worker. Just we're kids, right? And it showed us their their salary range. And just years later, I reflected on that and thought, what if entrepreneur had been in that uh, in that book? It would have said, you know, negative one million dollars to one billion dollars. That would have been the salary range, and I'm sure that would have piqued our interest. But it wasn't in that book.
0: <laughs> that would be an unfair advantage to all the other uh, occupations, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Um, so, in your first venture, right, you take you develop this uh, idea into a real world technology that solves a real world problem. Um, you win the awards, the accolades uh, from the president of the United States himself, Barack Obama at the time. Uh, what was what did you do well uh, to really build that? into a very uh, valuable asset that Ford Motor Company wanted to acquire from you. Uh, And what did you totally mess up on where you're like, man, that was definitely the wrong move when I did that?
1: Yeah. Uh, So to the first part, the part that I got right and had a kind of natural um, affinity for was ensuring that, the tech, the product we are working on um, did what it essentially needed to do. So in other words, in any kind of new venture, there's a 100 things you could do, and many of them are dispensable. And then there's like maybe one or maybe two things that this thing must do. And it's so easy for new ventures to do 80 things it doesn't need to do and to, and to miss the one thing it needs to do. And if you if you do the essential thing, if you offer the customer the essential aspect of the, of the experience, you can kind of, you know, that covers many a sin, right? But if the thing doesn't essentially do what it needs to do, then no amount of bells and whistles is going to save it. And so what I knew was that uh, with a company that had no track record, essentially a bunch of kids who had never had jobs before going after... Competitive bids against established companies at the state level. I mean, this was this is I I say it out loud, and I almost don't believe it even happened because it's so it's so far fetched. I must have been naive to even try this. But we, but I knew that if we could, if I could build technology that showed the world uh, buses moving around in real time on the internet, which had never been done before, that that would give me all the credibility I needed. And we would we literally, as a band of kids, went around demoing this thing, and these. And our customers said, look, I I wish they had other customers, but they don't. We've got some, you know, child geniuses here with never before seen technology and it works and we're going to take a shot on them. And if we hadn't done that, if I'd gone around with a PowerPoint or something, I don't think it would have worked. I had to build it, show people that we were serious and then and then demo it to them. And that's. that gave us our shot and there would have been no other path we didn't have pedigree we didn't have track record we didn't have anything else to rely on so we had to really um, have some showmanship there and and bring the goods to prove that we could do the hardest part of this project and that everything else we could be trusted with because the hardest part we'd already solved
0: Mm, got it and then part two of the question looking back what could you have done better
1: yeah so there was this funny period I I am kind of an extreme visionary of my ideas so I can be I can be rather early in the market uh where the market takes a couple of years to develop and so we hit kind of a lull in the early days of um of the company uh, remember there was no Uber there was no SpaceX like transportation technology wasn't really a category yet people weren't investing in it people weren't asking for it really and and I was sitting around one day and we just weren't selling and i just went to a to a guy who knew more than me who was more experienced you know twice my age and i just said i don't i don't get it like why why is nobody buying and he says well what do you what do i'm saying well i've got these emails back and forth with them and they said they're they're interested and and but it never it never closes and this guy said how much are you charging and and these were institutional sales right so these were could be three hundred thousand dollar you know deals or something And he said, and you've never met these people before? (laughs) And I said, no, but I talked to them on the phone once or twice. And he said, Josh, there's just something about human nature where when you're charging that much, people need to lay their eyes on you. They need to shake your hand. They need to look you in the face and you need to promise them that you're going to make this work. You can't, you can't do that with a bunch of emails. You know, (laughs) you're not IBM. And so the moment he said it, I just felt kind of like a fool, but realized how right he was. And I just got on trains. I got on planes. I went to these customer sites and I said, guess what? I happen to be in your area. Are you free for lunch before I leave town, right? And I got the meetings and I shook hands and then the deals closed. But it was pretty ridiculous that I thought I could, you know, I thought this stuff is great. It's obviously great. I'm a guy on the phone. We had a nice chat, send me the money.
0: This is a powerful lesson, I think, uh, that you present to Startup Nation. Startup Nation, are you hiding behind your emails? Are you hiding behind your smartphone? Are you hiding behind your social networks? But never engaging people face-to-face. You're forgetting about the most important thing, human connection.
1: And And listen. And for four, Joseph, for four computer scientists, we were terrified of people like, you know, the phone would ring and everybody would look at each other. And and I was just, I didn't even know I'd I'd actually be the CEO. I just wanted to code, but I was the one who was, who eventually answered the phone and, and had this terrifying human interaction and just realized that that whole side of the business kept falling to me and that I wasn't, my best purpose was not sitting there coding. Other people were happy to do that. I had to, I had to go shake these hands and sell the vision, but I did not see myself that way. Initially, I wanted to hide, just like you're saying.
0: Okay, perfect, right? So there are so many founders of small uh, firms, coaching practices, et cetera, solo entrepreneurs that uh, do not see themselves as that person in that role to do the marketing and to do the sales. They want to do the coding, they want to create the widget, they want to tinker with it, iterate, et cetera, but hide behind the scenes. How did you get past that fear? Like, What steps did you actually take that my listener can now take this week? this week in their own business to say, you know what, I'm going to put on that hat because Josh is right. It's not working. I'm not closing deals. Revenue is not coming in. There's no one else to do it but me. So
1: how do they do it? What was helpful for me was to realize that early sales, especially in a startup are actually part of product development. So if you're having trouble viewing yourself as a salesperson, then just, but you can view yourself as the, as the founder or the visionary or the person developing the service or the offering, understand that those early sales are product development. You have to go meet the market. I was, I was correct in our fundamental assumption of what the, what, what the market wanted, but I was wrong about almost everything else. You know, like I would go to these agencies and I had my ideas for what, what the technology would do for them, and it kind of was gonna make their world look like a video game, because I was playing video games at the time. And they would say to me stuff like, well, clearly, if you're doing all that tracking, you could, you could you know, what reports will you be offering us? And I was just like, reports, you know? And I was like, well, what reports do you want? And they say, well, we need the headway report. We need the on-time performance report. And I was like, of course, you're gonna have the best headway report you've ever had. And I walk out of there, I didn't know anything about what they actually wanted, right? It was hilarious. So that's an indispensable experience and so you have to view these interactions not as optional uh, but as absolutely indispensable and the job of the founder is to get this new offering to product market fit and if if you can get there then you can start relying on salespeople and so on and so forth but you have to get it to product market fit uh, and that's the job of the founder that's very well said so
0: startup nation i encourage you Uh, If you don't, if you haven't done this, your first 10 customers are your market research. Your first 10 customers. Now, it could be your first 50, depending on the price of your product or service, right? But they are giving you the feedback to make your product, your service better, so that more people want to pay you for it. You get that, right? So take the time to really invest in listening to them. And it's okay if you're like hey joseph josh you know i've been at this for a year and a half i got more than 10 clients but man it just won't grow i'm at 80000 i can't get to 100 i can't get to 200. what's the problem well go back to your market and ask them they're gonna tell you what what you're missing that they want and are willing to pay you for and they may say hey when you first started out i really like this but now the more, everything has changed. I have new problems that need to be solved. I have new needs. And your product or service really isn't addressing it. I like you. Now, if you could come up with a solution, yeah, I'll pay you again. Or I'll pay you more. Like, don't you want to hear that from people? So you got to get on the planes and the trains or nowadays the Zoom. Uh, and, and, you know, Josh, when you were saying that um, earlier, you know, a company does, and I'm paraphrasing here, but they find a pain point, they find a market, and then they create a solution and an offer where they do one thing and they they do it with excellence. Never miss out on doing the one thing that people actually want uh, with excellence. And Zoom came to mind immediately, right? The platform we're on right now doing this podcast. And I remember, you know, I was on Zoom three years ago, three and a half years ago when I started this podcast, right? And I've been using it ever since. And I was like, man, this is a company that just does one thing and it does it well. I never have problems with this platform. And and I was like, I should have invested in Zoom after the pandemic hit. Like that was, that should have been a thing. But I say that uh, just as an example for you, Startup Nation. What are your favorite services that you subscribe to right now that you're paying for? And look at what Josh said. Are they doing like the main thing that you wanted? Are they doing it well? And what you'll find is across the board, they probably are. Now look at your own company and ask yourself, are you doing the main thing that your clients want an answer to or solution for? Are you doing it well, first and foremost, before you're doing the other 50 things? Josh, what do you want to add to that or take away?
1: Yeah, I'll add that if if your customers aren't, Writing a check or swiping their credit card, you're just fooling yourself. They'll be nice to you all day long. They'll tell you it's great. You're great. They'll get back to you. But a yes is when they pay. And if you're really, really good, you'll be building something where they'll want to pay you before it's even finished being built. And that's hard. That's rare. It's a very high bar. But that's, that I think is the holy grail. And that takes a very, very good idea and a very, very strong pain point. And it is, it is, it is possible. That's essentially what we did. I bootstrapped the company without any outside investment, ten thousand dollars of my own life savings, and I did it because we eventually hit it such that the customer was essentially willing to help help us build it. They were willing to pay uh, before it was even ready, and that's. I know it sounds impossible, but it's not. Bootstrapping is a thing. We talk like investors and getting investment and. You know if you go get an mba it's like step one is get investors well you just have to remember that bootstrapping is possible there are a lot of pain points in the world and if you really hit on a great solution the customer will say look i want to be first in line when this thing is ready i'm going to be the first so in order to do that would you agree that the customer has to truly believe in you Yes, for early sales. And and what I love, what I come back to again and again, have you seen this book, Crossing the Chasm? Have you ever seen that book? It's, it's mm-hmm. a famous business book. I think I read it, but I'll tell you, everything you need to know is on the cover. It's just that curve. It's just this bell curve that goes like this. And essentially what it's saying is that the market is split into innovators who love to be first, early adopters who love to be next, the early majority who won't buy until their nerdy nephew has already been using it for a few years the late majority who won't buy until their fancy neighbors generally have already bought. And then, you know, your grandma who may not, you know, want it at all, but eventually they cancel, you know, her, her Nokia can't get online anymore. So they got to, you got to get her a new phone or something. Right. I think
0: they call them the laggards.
1: The laggards. Right. And, and to be honest, some, some, some grandmas and grandpas are ahead of the curve and they, they're right there sure. with their nephews and nieces and they love the new stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, But the beautiful thing about that curve is what it's saying is essentially that if you call a hundred people and tell them about your new product or service if it's really the more innovative as that it is the more of them they're going to say no you're really looking for the two out of 100 who are going to say yes at that point and so you have to really remind yourself of that because otherwise you're bound to run into a segment of the market who's not ready to do something innovative Mm -hmm. and i'm i'm speaking specifically to innovation and innovators doing things that have never been done before because that's my mo I listened to a lot of your other guests and and they were they weren't so much extreme visionaries but they were like you know did roofing or did cleaning or whatever Mm -hmm. in their area they're solid solid you know local entrepreneurs and I'm talking specifically those are known needs right people know they need roofs eventually this and that I'm talking about innovations where you're you're kind of doing that Steve Jobs thing where you're almost you're almost inventing something people don't even know they want yet but you have a hunch that they're going to want it once they see it yeah that's that is super powerful so what is the uh
0: secret behind getting early adopters to believe in you and your product you're offering you've been very effective and very successful at this in your career so for my listeners out there that are visionary types and you need those early adopters to buy in in order to get that traction, Uh, Josh, help them out. What is the secret to getting people to believe in you?
1: Well, it comes down to sharing the vision, selling the vision. And really, I sometimes call the early founder, not a CEO or anything, I call them the vision keeper. Uh, Because your job is to have this vision, to refine this vision and to share this vision, whether it be with customers or even with team members. How do you get people to join your company, you know, for under a market rate or something because they believe in what you're doing? Right. You've got to you've got to share this vision. Now, the vision needs to be compelling. So you can't delude yourself into some vision that you have that the market will never share. So you have to be a fan of reality, which you also have to be a fan of the real of the potential reality you know, what could actually exist in the world that doesn't exist now. You're willing to get feedback from reality about it. Um, But it also helps to be articulate. So uh, I've over time and maybe naturally from a certain age uh, had some persuasive abilities, but I also practiced public speaking. I took every shot I could to get in front of a stage. I was terrified I would lose sleep for days at a time thinking, why did I sign up for this? I can't believe I signed up for this. But i took every opportunity that i could to get in front of a room to get on a stage and to share a vision to do extemporaneous speaking you could drop me onto a stage right now in front of a thousand people Mm -hmm. and i would come up with something to say and the scary thing is it can be so powerful though, that you can actually convince people of things that don't make any sense at all. And uh, you know, the effect- Welcome, of off-
0: to, welcome to politics in America <laughs> right now.
1: Right, so it's like, exactly, it's the reality distortion field that's sometimes called. So it's great to have that skill, but you also need to not delude yourself and use it wisely and actually take lead people toward uh, something actually valuable. Awesome, thank you for sharing that.
0: All right, Josh, what's the number one daily habit? That you apply in your life that has moved your businesses, grown your revenue, um, added more
1: value and impact to the world than anything else? I think I'm going to disappoint you here, uh, Joseph, because I wish I were a more disciplined and structured person, and I'm not. I'm kind of all over the place. But if there's anything that's consistent, it's. I, I try to stay positive and actually love life because if you if you love the world and you love life, you're going to look for ways to help. And if you can find ways to help, you're going to create value. And if you can create value, then you're going to be just fine and there's profit to be had. So I have just that general outlook on life. I've always um, been a positive person in in the sense that I've in any company I've ever started, it had an intention to actually improve the world. I've never actually just thought of a way to make money. And had it hold my interest for more than a few minutes. Um, There's an inherent, I don't know, there's an inherent sort of uh, just desire to help and to make the world better and and productivity is satisfying. So I will say I've done things intentionally to kind of unhook, unhinge myself from uh, lesser pleasures. I remember getting rid of my television in the year 2002, back when that meant something. Nowadays, everything's a television. It doesn't, when kids say, I don't have a television either, that doesn't matter because they're watching TV on their wristwatch or something. Mm-hmm. But in the early 2000s, it meant something if you had no TV. It was weird. People thought I was strange for not having one, but I realized one day I was either going to get this company started or I was going to watch TV, but I wasn't going to get to do both.
0: Mm, very powerful. Okay. Welcome to my favorite part of the show. We are speaking with Josh Witten. You can find him at makesoil.org. Uh, Josh, welcome to the Hustle Round. I'm going to ask you 10 quick quick-fire questions. You'll have about three seconds to answer each. Don't overthink it. It's just for fun. It's like a game show. Are you ready? I'm ready. What's your favorite thing about being a visionary entrepreneur, tech entrepreneur? What
1: do you got? The autonomy and unbounded uh, creativity. Nice. What's your least favorite thing? Uh, There's no one to abdicate responsibility to or anyone else to blame. Just your own actions and their consequences. Man. That's tough. bro. Uh, What are you most afraid of Uh, not living up to my potential?
0: Got it. I believe we're all struggling with something at any given moment of our life. It's just part of the human condition. What are you
1: currently struggling with right now, either professionally or personally? these days i think the the struggle is that because of my success i don't really have to do anything so how do you wake up and kick butt and work as hard as you can when you really don't have to so you have to uh, when you don't have the fear or lack or need driving you you have to find newer kind of higher motivations and uh, that can be challenging because if i slack off most people don't care i get a pass they'll give me an award they say you've done great things in the past but how do you keep yourself um, hungry for doing more So what's your number one way you do that? The number one way I do that is um, is trying and this is an active pursuit, but but rewiring my brain to understand just how pleasurable it is to actually keep engaging with life and to keep making a difference and to into and to participate in the act of creation. I just have to uh, look past all the frustrations and just realize that it is one of the greatest pleasures I've ever experienced. And I want my mind to work that way where it recognizes that is the greatest pleasure.
0: Hmm. Immediately what comes to mind is we all have a daily choice, a daily habit to focus on creation or focus on, um, what was I going to say? I totally blank complacency. There you go. Creation or complacency, Right. right? These, this is our daily choice. All right. So, what do you what did you spend way too much time
1: doing this past year? Probably watching people argue online instead of focusing on what what I can do to make things better.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a futile activity, my friend. Uh, what secret fear do you have about people?
1: Uh, what frightens me about people is how much I like everybody off the bat, and that means that I tend to focus on people's potential instead of their actual. Uh, and I have, I have a mantra now that I have to remind myself of is I don't, I don't care about what people's potential is. I care about what they're capable of today. Cause when you're trying to do something great, uh, you need people who are capable of doing that right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is so powerful. That is a powerful distinction. Um, that you just put language to. I've struggled with that my whole life. When I see a person and they're complaining about their life and their struggles, I see their potential. I'm like, let's go. What What percentage
1: are ready to go? Well, and, and it, when it's bounded to you being a coach, then you can care about their potential all day long, right? But then if F- you need, yeah, right. But then if you need to hire somebody that you're paying to do a thing for you, it's not about them being your client. They are, you're their client. <laughs> Agreed, hundred percent.
0: What do you wish you had learned sooner in business?
1: I wish I had hired uh, into various roles faster and sooner. And I think I, I perpetually struggle with this because I'm a, I'm a DIY kind of guy. I can do anything. I love, I love moonlighting and things and trying things. Like if you told me, you know, I had to be a fashion designer for the next three weeks or something, I would throw myself at it. I don't know a thing about that stuff. Right. You got, you got the hair, dude. Like, <laughs> work <you>. it, man. <laughs> But, um, I spent way too long doing roles in in my companies that I should have, that were that were well-baked and ready to hand off to a specialist who knew that role inside and out. And I held onto them too long.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Welcome to the world of little control freaks like myself. <laughs> I get it. What's a new
1: habit you want to create in your life? I'm toying with this idea of, Uh, like putting my phone in airplane mode every, uh, every even hour, and then taking it out in every odd hour. I think that would, I think that would give Mm -hmm. me an incredible edge in society today to not have something dinging or pinging uh, for a solid hour. And I can't remember the last time I experienced that. (laughs) I like that. It's very creative. Uh, What's a bad habit you want to break? It's, it's looking at phone messages too often. Mm -hmm. Just, just the notion that any one of nearly a thousand people in the world could, could ping me and my phone is going to make a sound and I'm going to look down at it and stop doing whatever I was doing. It's, it's actually absurd when you stop and think about it.
0: hundred percent. Like literally (laughs) anyone in the world can steal your focus at a whim. And this is normal. This is normal in our society. It's ridiculous. Uh, Pick three words to describe who you are now. Uh,
1: Good natured world changer and leader i'm actually i'm actually using that word more often now to kind of see myself more that way um yeah. because i sometimes i start complaining and, a, and my friend will say to me josh you're you're a leader that's how it is if that if the if you if this thing were already the way that you're complaining about it being uh, there'd be nothing for you to do so do you want to be a leader or not
0: and who's the first person you gotta lead josh
1: oh yourself boom yeah people it. people when they start a business uh, there's this old joke i don't think i made it up but it's uh uh, people, um, people say they want to be their own boss, but they mean is they don't want to have a boss. Yeah. Being your own boss means you have a boss. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Uh, pick three words to describe who you were, uh, your first year in that business, right? When you're out there doing the sales conversations, all that jazz.
1: It was a mix of, uh, optimistic, uh, but also frustrated and naive.
0: Yeah. For sure. And going back to your earlier point about naivety, uh, I also was naive at 19 years old and we ended up building, you know, a multi-million dollar company within 12 months. Um, naivety is a fuel. It's a jet fuel. Um, if you 100 percent believe uh, that the world will bend in your direction and your belief is so certain, it actually does.
1: It's yes. fascinating. And you know what? I wish I still had that. Uh, it's a bit of a blessing, isn't it? Because really, it if really somebody is. come to you on day one and said, uh, we're going to clear your naivety here, and we're going to show you every single event that's going to happen for you to get this thing successfully done, you might have opted out. You might have said, I'm not signing up for that. That oh, it was painful. 100%. And over the
0: past 10, 15 years, I've listened to the world and all the naysayers, and it has stolen my naivety, my mm. jet fuel. Yeah. You know, and I look back and I'm like, why did I let the world pickpocket me? Exactly. It worked.
1: I'm so, I'm so careful about uh, who I surround myself uh, with yeah. now and and choosing positive people. And, and people will try, will criticize them and say, well, you can't just focus on the positive. You got to be realistic and blah, blah. Like, I've been realistic. I understand what the world is full of, but I have a limited amount of awareness. And what am I going to load into that awareness? I'm going to load mm. purely positive and optimistic things at this point because I'm making a choice to. I'm making a That's choice right. to.
0: Josh, last question, if you could come back to life after you died, look your family, your friends in the eye and give them only one piece of advice about everything,
1: life, eternity, meaning, what would you say to them? Yeah, I'd say, I don't know how you're going to do it. And I know it seems impossible, but don't be afraid and take your best shot and take your best shot again and again and again. Keep swinging,
0: Startup Nation. Any final wisdom? What's the one thing you want my listener to know about making their first $100,000, not for the sake of the income, but for the sake of the impact that they can do with it?
1: Yeah, I would say go in the direction of something that actually legitimately interests you. And then in that domain, find something that the world actually, actually needs and and come up with a, a solution for it because you know it's kind of like a sailboat you know has a, can have one or two or three sails right like if you have that if you have something that actually interests you that you actually care about and you fall in love with the value you can add to the world then that's just really going to put wind in your sails on days that are otherwise going to seem you know pretty tough
0: mm, awesome and josh uh go ahead take a minute and just uh speak to us about make soil
1: What is it? Um, How do we get involved? Where do we go? What do you got for them? Great. So the planet is in this interesting situation now where it's never had 8 billion people before and uh, it's actually kind of a rough gig for the planet to deal with 8 billion people who love as much stuff as we do and have as many holidays as we do and and drink as many you know cups of coffee as we do and disposable this and that. So one thing that needs to change kind of planet wide and like my my big thing now is, is making changes on a planetary scale. I think that's the most like fun, luxurious thing you can do once you're successful is, is to think big, right? And so one thing we can do now um, that's a win-win-win in every possible direction is to keep organic matter out of landfills. So this is your banana peels, your coffee grounds, your eggshells, your apple cores, none of that stuff, none of that stuff belongs in the garbage can. It's got the nutrients in it that need to go back into the ground so we can keep growing more nutritious food. Right now, the the food on our shelves at the grocery store, it's, it's less nutritious by the day because that food is coming out of the ground, pulling nutrients out of the ground, and most of the leftovers are going to landfills worldwide, over 90%. So if we can instead keep that stuff out of landfills, compost it, turn it back into soil in our neighborhoods, we can grow food with it, we can keep the human race going, we can go past 8 billion people, we can be easier on the planet, But it's it's kind of a non-negotiable thing. Like right now, the the calculations, it's this one-way function of the food system. It doesn't work out for 8 billion people. So the good news is it's fun and easy to start composting. Just go to makesoil.org. It's a nonprofit. It's a web platform that I've built with some friends and um, you can find a soil maker in your neighborhood. This is a neighbor of yours who loves creating new soil out of uh, food scraps and leaves and organic matter. And you just start taking your food scraps to them. And so you don't have to learn how to do it end to end. Your kids will love it. Your kids, you know, people's kids are going to school and they're getting told about climate change and this and that. They're coming home, they're afraid. They're saying, mommy, daddy, what can we do? They're saying, I don't know, nothing. You start doing this, everybody feels good. You meet your neighbors, you see all the beautiful food it took to feed you and keep you alive that week. It's very humanizing. It's just a beautiful shared activity to have and it does the planet a real solid too. So please check out makesoil.org. It's free, it's benevolent, it's enjoyable. Have at it. That's awesome. And Josh, I know you've already considered this.
0: However, I'm going to ask, have you considered doing Make Soil uh, at a statewide level like you did with transportation? In other words, when my garbage truck pulls up two times a week and it grabs the garbage pail and it grabs the recycle pail could it also grab the make soil pail and then dump it in back into the land at scale
1: yeah this is the earth this is a very interesting question because actually in cities that have spent a lot of money on this that's exactly what they do they have another bin at the curb uh, and that takes it and to a centralized facility It turns out there's a new principle that um, your listeners need to be aware of, and that is the principle of uh, decentralization and distributed systems. And so this is kind of where the world is going from Web 2 to Web 3. It turns out that distributed systems are more resilient and there's just certain problems where where a distributed system makes more sense than a centralized system. Hmm. So in this case, in this case, unlike recycling aluminum and plastic, which you couldn't melt down in your backyard, In this case, the organic matter is better dealt with in thousands and millions of micro soil sites in our neighborhoods. Because once you actually truck it around, it's 80%, 90% water weight. Once you truck it around in those trucks that get three miles to the gallon and then push it around with a bulldozer or a centralized facility, you actually lose all the sort of greenhouse gas numbers you were trying to hit to begin with. So this is actually, the organic matter is the one thing that we can recycle in a fun way in our own neighborhoods. It doesn't need to smell, it's enjoyable. Um, And it gives people a transformative experience of actually taking care of the earth, which is sorely lacking today. We're sick of, honestly, Joseph, people are sick of just getting boxes on their doorstep and then chucking it into a box that another person takes away. It's just we're not like living the full cycle of what it means. And so when people watch their food scraps turn into soil and then possibly grow a seed, you know, plant a seed in there and grow something from it. It's like a spiritual experience. And I kid you not, I'm, I'm, and once people have that experience, they call me and say, I had it. I get it. I love this now. This is my new This is my new um, sacred act, taking care of the earth with my neighbors this way. So this is one thing we're not wanting to outsource to a big truck at the curb. This is something we want to see happen in a distributed manner in neighborhoods all over the earth.
0: I love it, right? We were created as co-creators on this planet, and we have become co-destroyers. And this allows us to participate back into that co-creative process. That was actually the name of my previous company that got acquired in 2019. was mm-hmm. co-creative Beautiful. Uh, because I really believed in that. So Josh Witten, uh, find him at makesoil.org. Go ahead and get involved, Startup Nation. Josh, thanks for taking the time out of your day to hang out with me and Startup Nation. I wish you God's love, peace, and joy in your
1: life, sir. Thank you, Joseph. It was a pleasure.
0: To see if you're ready. Are you ready to do what it takes? Some people try to come to me, but they're not ready to be coachable. They're not ready to get rid of the problems. Again, if you don't want to talk about your problems anymore and you've tried everything and nothing has worked and you want to permanently get rid of them, go to josephwarren.net and let's see if I'm your guy.